Welcome to the High Fidelity Podcast. I am your host, Bridget Connery, coming to you from the dialed studio at Hula on the shores of beautiful Lake Champlain in Burlington, Vermont. In today's episode, we do a quick update on the Vermont market, including a look at the latest numbers from the CCB, and we hear from a handful of Vermont growers and producers on what craft means to them. We'll be right back. The CCB, or Cannabis Control Board, held its monthly board meeting last week. And you know what that means. It's time for a look at the latest numbers. But before we start, a few other important updates on what is happening in the Vermont marketplace. Another town meeting day has come and gone. This year, only three towns had a ballot question to opt in to cannabis retail sales. Bethel successfully approved the measure with a 131 to 71 vote. This brings the total number of municipalities who have opted in to 74, or approximately 29% of municipalities overall. Brighton and Castleton each failed to pass the measure. It was the second time at bat in Brighton and the third for Castleton. Unfortunately, Castleton also saw the widest margin between the yeas and nays this time around. The fact that only three towns put the question to voters this town meeting day does not bode well for the geographic expansion of retail in Vermont anytime soon. Town Meeting Day, the first Tuesday every March, is a day when citizens come together to elect their local officials, to pass their budgets, and to take up any other civic issues that have been put onto the ballot. Unless citizens organize for a special ballot, Town Meeting Day is generally the only time each year that residents would be able to vote on an issue like opting in to retail sales. H-145, or the Budget Adjustment Act, became law on March 20th. With the passage of this bill, the CCB received funding for an internal reference lab. The money allocated will cover the cost of equipment and three new staff positions to operate the lab. The new law also exempts cannabis vape liquids from the tobacco products tax beginning July 1st. A 92% tax at the wholesale level will continue to remain on vape hardware. Speaking of labs, on Thursday, March 30th, Vermont's certified analytical labs met with the CCB staff to discuss discrepancies in potency reporting. They decided that from now on, flower and cannabis biomass results will be standardized on certificates of analysis, or COAs, using the dry weight method of reporting instead of the as-sold method. We talked about this previously with CCB Compliance Director Carrie Jagir in Episode 9. Cannabinoid levels change depending on the method used. The dry weight method will always yield a higher result because when you remove all the moisture from the flower sample, the weight of the THC, or CBD, increases in proportion to what remains. In comparison, the as-sold method includes the moisture content of the sample, which represents how the finished good will eventually be sold, generally within the 10 to 13% moisture range. People go back and forth on which is the preferred method, and it can be argued either way. The dry weight method allows samples to be compared apples to apples, so to speak, because everyone is being evaluated at 0% moisture. 
This should decrease the amount of lab shopping that growers usually engage in to find the highest THC value they can get. A danger that the dry weight poses for growers is that it can push them over the 30% Delta-9 THC cap that Vermont has placed on flour. This would force them to redirect their product to extraction. Consumers should know moving forward that the potency numbers they see on labels, or COAs, are slightly elevated from what they are actually purchasing. And finally, last week the CCB issued a $20,000 fine to a licensed Tier 1 indoor cultivator for diverting some of his product to an unlicensed cannabis retail store in New York City. The owner of the business posted a video of his delivery on Instagram this past December, which was later reported to the CCB. This post has since been removed. Transporting cannabis across state lines is federally legal and is strictly forbidden by state law. The owner was originally fined an additional 20000 for activity related to the diversion, and his license was suspended for 60 days. These additional penalties were eventually lifted, provided that the operator remains in compliance for the next two years. Okay, let's take a look at some of the latest numbers in the executive director's report presented in last month's CCB meeting. The CCB received 40 new license application submissions last month. This is a slight increase over February, which brought in 38. Of the 40 received in March, 28 were for cultivation, 5 were retail, 4 manufacturing, 1 wholesale, and 1 integrated license. This is the third and last of the currently licensed medical dispensaries, Grassroots Vermont, located in Brandon. The CCB issued 29 more licenses over the same time frame, bringing the overall total to 375. Tier 1 cultivators continue to make up the majority of this number. They also issued 67 new employee ID cards, bringing that total to 366. As an aside, board member Julie Hubbard noted that the CCB will soon be issuing its first workforce survey. The pilot project will go out quarterly to both business owners and employees and will attempt to capture data such as how many people are actively employed, in which sector, the number of hours being worked, rate of pay, benefits offered, etc. Understanding these numbers will give us a better understanding of the overall economic impact and opportunity the cannabis industry is creating in the state. On the product registration front, the backlog appears to be dwindling as staff are now processing registrations received within the last 30 days. In total, 1,977 product registrations have been submitted. 974 have been approved, 399 have been deemed incomplete, 229 are currently under review, 225 have been withdrawn, and 150 are in the queue. Across all statuses, these products break down into the following categories. Approximately 75% are flour or pre-rolls, 10% each for edibles and concentrates, and about 2.5% each for tinctures and other, which includes items like transdermal, topical, and capsules. Cultivators were prioritized in the beginning of the licensing process in order to kickstart the market. We expect these numbers to shift as more manufacturers come online. You can now find product registration reports on the CCB's website, both approved and submitted awaiting review. I recommend you check them out. You'll get a great feeling for the Vermont vibe. The CCB shed some light on the advertising front, an area that remains a major headache for businesses. Vermont has some of the most restrictive cannabis advertising laws in the country. Businesses must submit their ads to the CCB for review to ensure that they are compliant. 
This includes, among other things, providing proof that the audience for the ad is reasonably expected to be no more than 15% under the age of 21. The challenge these laws are imposing is reflected in the relatively few ads that have been submitted to the CCB. Only 51 since the beginning of the market on October 1st of last year. 26 of these have been approved, 21 denied, and four are incomplete. Director Hare did note that they are beginning to see an increase in the past couple of months and are receiving on average about five a week. I don't know about you, but I have definitely seen more than 50 ads on social media, which makes me think that companies are skirting the process as long as they can get away with it. It can also explain why a lot of the complaints that the CCB gets are in regards to advertising. We need to find a solution here, because just like any other industry, cannabis companies need to be able to advertise to attract customers in order to succeed as a business. An added benefit is that advertising can also bring more legacy consumers into the legal marketplace. Finally, we received some interesting data on the medical program. The total number of registered patients continues its downward trend. There are currently around 3,600 patients accessing the program. This is down over 1,000 patients in the last 12 months. The medical cannabis program has been understaffed for the past few months, which has resulted in delayed registrations for both patients and caregivers. Many have been waiting over 30 days for their application to be processed. This is hard for a patient that relies on products only available in the medical market, where there are no potency caps on product categories or serving sizes. For the first time, the CCB shared info about the qualifying conditions of the patients in the program. Over 75% of patients qualify for chronic pain. The remaining 25% or so are spread out over about 10 other qualifying conditions, with cancer, severe nausea, and PTSD topping the list. Okay, that is it for this month's numbers. We'd like to end this week's episode by taking up a hot topic currently taking place in the Vermont cannabis community. And by community, I'm basically talking about industry operators, because in my experience, the general public is not paying much attention. There's been a lot of chatter lately in the public comment section of CCB meetings, as well as on social media, related to the Vermont brand of cannabis and how it should be shaped. A lot of the conversation revolves around supporting small businesses, and some go so far as to advocate for limiting how big a company can be, particularly when it comes to cultivation. The fear is that the larger operators, those in Tier 4 and 5, or the integrated licenses, will quickly oversupply the market and drive prices down for everyone. The word craft gets thrown around quite a bit, too. But what exactly does that mean? And does size matter? We will be exploring this topic regularly on the podcast, both through our market coverage and in interviews with stakeholders. This week, we invited a handful of producers in Vermont to share their perspective on what craft means to them. And this is what we learned. Hello, this is Jessica Sipe of Mother Flower. We have a cultivation tier one and manufacturing tier two license. How would I define craft? What a great question. As a small business, we are very much involved in every aspect from growing to producing our products. It's curiosity that leads us down a path It's the struggles that drive our creativity, and it's a conscious connection throughout that fuels our efforts. So for us, it's the process that is the craft. It requires a lot of listening and then a lot of doing. On the manufacturing side, it's all about the choices. 
Whether it's packaging, inputs, process, we don't make any decisions lightly. It can feel like an immense amount of work and often like we're doing things the hardest way possible. But the opportunity to create something special and valued feels so much more attainable. As we grow, each decision along the way is a call and response. For example, we might have a year where we're battling environmental pressures and we notice a few of our plants thriving amongst wild burdock. We make note and start to prepare teas of burdock to support our plants along with other native inputs. After such great efforts to grow healthy medicinal plants, we want to make sure that anything we combine them with is of equal value both energetically and beneficially. For example, with our chocolates, we chose to make our gems from cocoa beans sourced from a small cooperative in Bolivia, our sun-grown single-strain cannabis, organic cocoa butter, and Vermont maple sugar. We are one of a handful of bean-to-bar cannabis chocolate makers in the country. Each ingredient was a conscious choice, and each aspect of the process was the harder, slower route, which we believe results in an overall evolved experience. With both our flour and our products, craft is the outcome of our conscious connection with the plants and the process. Hello, my name is Amy Bacon, and I'm the Senior Production Manager at Series Collaborative. To me, craft means the ability to produce something with a commitment to quality and integrity. To achieve this, one has acquired specialized knowledge through training with the finest tools and ingredients. Craft is technical work that requires a perfect alchemy of science and love. In our kitchen, we produce many types of infused cannabis products over and over and over again, each time requiring attention to detail, precision, and great care. I love my craft. For over eight years, my team has been honing the necessary skills to generate consistent and reliable medicine for Vermonters. This is Dan from Rebel Grown in Craftsbury, Vermont. Craft cannabis. To me, craft cannabis comes from um, the intention. You know, it's a drive and a passion more than a choice. I think that the number one thing that comes to mind when I think of craft cannabis is in an industry where a lot of people want to get involved and they see a dollar sign, if your number one motivation and intention for wanting to be involved with the industry and the plant is money, it is not craft cannabis. I think that also for something to be craft, it really needs to be you know, measured and, and judged by the quality. You know, cannabis is an easy plant to grow. It's a weed that can grow in cracks in the pavement. But growing exceptional cannabis that's going to be special and memorable takes years and years of experience and gaining intuition with the plant and learning how to nurture it and learning how to let the plant speak to you and and explain its needs. You know, creating something that's going to blow people away in the way that it makes them feel, the way that it looks, the way that it smells, the way that it makes them taste. You know, craft cannabis like that is not easy. And most growers are not going to be able to achieve that without putting in a lot of time and a lot of work. There's a story that comes to mind. Back maybe 10 years ago, I was running a large farm in in Humboldt County, and we were one of the biggest farms in the area. Um, But I was in charge of every single, you know, aspect of the farm. We grew in very rich and diverse organic soils with with custom mixes. All of our water was collected from rain and 
and ponds. All the irrigation was, was drip from gravity. Uh, we didn't run any gas pumps or anything like that. And I had a guy that I was working with who had previously been living in Vermont in a cabin off grid. And, um, you know, he kind of mentioned, he goes, is it greedy to be growing all this weed? And I looked at him and I said, listen, the way that I see it, as long as the environment around where we're cultivating this weed, as long as we're leaving this either not impacted negatively or even improving it and making the landscape better than it was before we started, you know, then I feel comfortable growing as much as we want. I can sleep good at night knowing that we're taking care of this land, we're stewarding the land, we're kind of in sync with nature. And if anything, we're contributing. We don't have any runoff. We're not using any chemicals or anything that's toxic or any pesticides. And for us, it was all about the love of seeing all the different plants and the, the chemotypes and the phenotypes and getting to learn about our genetics and see how they perform. And so in terms of scale in craft cannabis, my belief is, you know, I love seeing the plants. I'm not doing this for the money. I want to see as many of these plants grow. I want to see all the colors and flavors and smells and profiles. And so as long as we're taking care of the earth and giving back more than what we take and the quality is there, then I believe that's craft cannabis. Hi, my name is Emily Paquette. I am the founder of Florius, a cannabis brand focused on high quality ingredients, supporting well-being and the enjoyment of our cannabis products. We are firmly rooted in the belief that everybody deserves to experience wonder and joy in their day-to-day. Florius seeks to partner with local growers, producers, and artisans who also share our values and believe in using high-quality inputs and responsible methods of sourcing and production. It's the thought and the care given to the ingredients and their sources that I really hope shines through in our final product. And it's also the kind of mindset that defines what craft means to me. Craft-made products should be produced with a level of finesse, hands-on attention, and personal touch to set them apart from the competition who might not be oriented to this kind of mindset. To me, it's also about how the products are shaped by the individuals behind its conception. It should feel special, held to a higher standard and a higher quality than more commonplace counterparts. These products feel familiar, like home, and they're often made from local or regional products, increasing this perception. Often there's a nod to seasonality associated with these products, adding to their panache. And I think probably most importantly is the sense of community and pride that these kinds of products can evoke. They endeavor to sustain the people who produce them and provide enjoyment within the communities that support them.
that'll do it for this episode. Thanks go out to my creative crew at High Fidelity, Olaf Willoughby and Shane Lynn, and to the team at Syntax and Motions for producing this show. A special shout out to Will Davis, my sound engineer. Thanks to you for listening to us today. If you enjoy what you heard, subscribe on our website, hi5vt.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Better yet, like, share, rate, or leave a comment. You can request topics or interviews for our show by emailing us at bewell at hi5vt.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, be well and have fun out there.